this thing on? If you like rock music, punk, metal, or blues, then you've come to the right place because we like it too. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Soundcheck, the rock and roll and alternative music podcast here at Central Michigan Life. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew Mullen. And really the sexiest podcast producer we have in uh, this this entire publication, uh, Ben Ackley. Ben Ackley. Hi. Love the love the makeup today, man. Thank and it's, you. it's really fitting for today's episode topic, which we'll get into in a second. But first, we'll plug the, the usual stuff. We got a Twitter. It's called S Check Official. Um, you can find us there. Uh, we've been trying to post a little more recently. Um, hopefully, we'll get some playlists up pretty soon, and you can kind of follow us along as we go through these episodes um, for the rest of the semester and the rest of the year. Um, I don't really have anything else to plug. Please go check out last week's episode, which was all about um, political anthems, uh, songs about yeah. social movements, et cetera, et cetera. It was a fantastic episode, kind of a, a more of a serious one, obviously, but still a really good listen to some great music being played on there. Um, and any Eagle Eye listeners might have noticed that we skipped a week. Uh, we'll put that blame on me. I had to take a, a family trip. It was all kind of last minute for me, but uh, I was down in Ohio for most of that. So didn't get back until like, I didn't even get back to Mount Pleasant until like, like this was past Monday. So, uh, uh, so I do apologize for the skipping weekly programming, but uh, it gave us and probably more accurately Ben here more time to prepare us for this week's episode, who, if you can't already tell the video listeners, he's very excited about. And this is probably one, a topic he's very passionate about as well. So Ben pretty much gets the floor here for the episode. Uh, we'll, we will interject with our thoughts about things from time to time, but Ben, this is really your moment to shine. And quite frankly, with with you wearing what you're wearing right now, why wouldn't we let you shine right now? So you're shining ben, very brightly. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost iridescent. It's crazy. So Ben, please please Take introduce away. us. What are we talking about today? All right, um, we are talking about a topic very near and dear to my heart. This week we're talking about glam rock, and you might not know what that means. And honestly, after this, if you don't know what it means, then you weren't listening. Um. I have a very heavily scripted episode for this show. This is this will go down in history because this is really the first episode I've taken full reins on. Very scary, but hopefully very rewarding too. Um, just a few notes before we start. We're playing more songs today than we might have ever played on this show. And some of them we'll be playing under while I'm speaking. Some of them I won't mention by name. So to see the entire set list for this, you can probably head over to our Twitter. I'm sure we'll post the, the Spotify playlist. And then you can also head over to cm-life.com, go to the podcast area, and you can find this episode. And I usually do links to all the songs and the entire set list will be there. So check that out if you're interested. Also, I'm going to give a little intro soliloquy here. And in this intro, I would like you all to know that I'm quoting from the back of Bubblegum Music is the Naked Truth, which is a, I believe, 1968 compilation from Buddha Records um, in reference to 
talking about bubblegum music. So that's a great compilation. You can get it. You can get all this shit for really cheap, especially bubblegum stuff. Um, but yeah, without further ado, I think it might be time to take it away. It is 1968. You turn the dial on your radio, trying to find Pink Floyd, King Crimson, Yes, Genesis, or any of the other up-and-coming bands in what is to be known as prog rock. Then your hand stops. A primitive chugging comes from the radio. I could play that on guitar, you sniff. Love in my tummy. What a weird thing to say. And yet, your head bobs. Your foot taps along. You've heard it once, and the chorus is now permanently in your brain. But it doesn't make any sense, you shout. It's not about war and poverty and disease and rioting and broken hearts and frustration and making money and lying and all the things that really matter. No, it's not about any of these things. And that's one of the reasons why it's so popular. It's about the good things in life we're always looking for and sometimes lose sight of. But it always comes back because people believe in love and innocence. Most of the sadness in this world comes from losing our innocence. But you can find it again. You can find it again with bubblegum music. Bubblegum music is the evolution and commercialization of garage rock in the late 60s, disseminated chiefly by producers Jerry Kaznetz and Jeffrey Katz, most famously on Buddha Records, which is where this comp comes from. If you went and look at my record collection, you'd find many, many Buddha Records. It's characterized by upbeat instrumentation and lyrics paired with a danceable beat. Some examples of bubblegum music that you probably know, even though you might not know the genre definer, is Sugar Sugar by the Archies, I'm a Believer by the Monkees, Simon Says by the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, and Yummy 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 by the Ohio Express, which you just heard under my voice. Critic Les Angs described bubblegum as the basic sound of rock and roll, minus the rage, fear, violence, and anime. That's essentially what bubblegum is. What did you guys think of the two bubblegummy songs that I had on this episode? Michael, do you mind if I go first on this one? Please. So, I, first of all, Ben, I do apologize for this. Um, but when I was researching for bubblegum music, uh, a word that I often came across to describe it was disposable. And I don't think that's too far off. Um, so yeah, no. Um, yeah. Whenever something's commercialized, you know, in air quotes, that is usually not a good sign. And we actually did a whole episode about 60s garage rock, which you can go back in our archives and listen to. That's actually the first episode Ben was on. So that was a really good episode. Um, And I love most of the music that we talked about in that episode. And bubblegum just rubs me a lot of the wrong ways. Maybe I'm just a miserable bastard. That is probably a big part of it. But... I think there is something to be said here with the word disposable. It, it, most of this is just meaningless, simple schlock, really. Uh, you know, particularly with that song, um, the vocals don't do much for me. I, I, I will say this, though, and I, and, I, I, and I do kind of agree with you in the sense that, yeah, sometimes happy music gets kind of thrown by the wayside. Sometimes we do glorify sadness. We do kind of overemphasize it at times in music. 
Uh, that being said, I think other songs, other genres have done it better. In fact, I was listening to Rain by the Beatles, and I think that does a much better job conveying happiness, finding happiness even in some of the more drab, miserable situations, such as you know, Rainfall, so typically seen as a sign of sadness, but in, in the eyes of that song, it, they managed to find something happy from it. I, I, I'm not going to say it. I can't say that everything in this um, genre is complete, you know, worth completely worthless i i guess i've just never been a fan of the monkeys i've never been a fan of this song uh, i mean like I, I think there's the reason why that yummy yummy doesn't really get much airplay outside of like commercials so and i i think the much more interesting music you know i think to me bubblegum is kind of the gateway for the much more interesting music we'll be talking about later so i won't deny its importance in music and what especially what we're talking about today but if you ask me yeah i don't need to hear any of this again but michael do you have something nice to say about this i do apologize ben no way i agree totally actually that's why i love it a quote from one of my idols anthony bourdain he once said communism is not good for food um the chef is trying to refer to um just food kind of being bland in a historically uh communist nation this raises the question, is capitalism good for music? And that is the question I hope Ben, uh, ben playing this musical answer for all of you today, and, and you will decide that for yourself. For me personally, um, I can see where this music has its place in society. Um, when I listen to it, I get sent back into a, um, into a 70s car driving around, um, just as Ben uh, described, like tuning through the radio and this coming on driving through a city street, picking up someone and about to go to a shopping mall or get a, a shake or et cetera. Um, <laughs> it puts me in a mood and it's a good mood. Um, am I in that mood often? Uh, that's another question. Um, for me, this is music that has its place. Um, but in my life, is that place really relevant? I don't know. Um, it's not something I would go back to, Ben. But um, we will eventually touch on some music in this playlist and in this episode of ours in this evolution that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, you know, unlike punk, where the seminal roots of it um, are probably some of the best examples of it. Um, when it comes to glam rock, maybe the seminal roots of it. Um, the, let's just say the tree blossom into something much more beautiful than than the roots. Yeah, I think you guys really you anticipated where we were going next here. Um, Bubblegum music is a very American creation. Plastic, fantastic, crowd-pleasing, disposable music. It really becomes significant to our story in the early 70s when the irresistible appeal, or maybe kind of resistible, of the bubblegum beat crosses the pond to the UK.
So it's bubblegum, but it's distinctly British. It never had the sheer commercial power there that it did here, but bubblegum was big enough to inspire rock musicians who were already growing wary of the oncoming onslaught of self-important rock and roll musicians that would rule the 70s. Concept album after concept album. No song under five minutes. What would that be? Enter Mark Bolin, lead singer and lead guitarist of T-Rex. Many would call T-Rex the most important glam rock group. I'd agree. In March of 1971, Mark Bolin appears on top of the pops in England with glitter on his cheeks, breaking glam in England. Within a year, T-Rex to see, which is the T-Rex version of Beatlemania, is in full bore. From 1970 to 1973, the band racked up 10 UK top 10 singles. T-Rex, a giant, massive glam group. What did you guys think of T-Rex? Can I go first on this one, Andrew? Please do. I, I really love this one, Ben. This was so, so infectious. And just like the song stuck with me. After I listened to uh, Bang a Gong, I went and tried to listen to some more T-Rex that I've heard over the years and that I've recognized um, there was one song in particular that p- played in Scott Pilgrim, uh, Teenage Dream, yeah. that I absolutely love. Um, and just like I, I, I actually watched a documentary, a BBC documentary on glam rock, more specifically focused in on, on Mark and just the, the impact this, that this man had um, on this scene and what um, music from England would eventually become is crazy it, it's like looking at freddie mercury again it's it's an incredible um you know what this man did to a, a entire subculture and an entire style of music um and it really opened my eyes that's what i have to say about t-rex 
Yeah, uh, more of the same, really. I mean, I, I, I feel like it's slightly more mixed on this one than Michael, but obviously I can't deny the influence that T-Rex had over over the years. Um, you know, so I, I went back. So I knew you, you recommended the two songs you just played for us to start with, you know, Bang Gong, which obviously is probably the most well-known track. Um, that one I was familiar with. Baby Strange, not, not so much. Um, so I went to listen to Electric Warrior just to kind of just to kind of get more of a feel for them. Uh, and to me, it got a little repetitive. It was the same kind of very spare, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I think it, the production kind of leaves some, it, it, it kind of want, leaves you wanting more with it. The riffs don't sound as chug, chunky or as heavy as, as you feel like they should. Um, but it, it was at least an interesting sound. But, you know, th- these very minimalist sounding riffs, you know, they, it, it, it did get old after a while. However, Mark Bolin is a pretty strong front man. I think he, he brings a lot to be desired. I think he, his ability and plus some pretty decent guitar work as well throughout there, some pretty good good licks throughout throughout that record really helped to carry um i i i would be interested in hearing more from the slider um that one i did not get a chance to really check out much more of but uh it did just from baby strange it sounds like it does get heavier so uh, do you th- do you th- say that'd be an accurate assessment then yeah that's what i was gonna say is um if if you're not as as into the this um electric warrior like andrew and you want it to be a little heavier the slider definitely does that i pull it completely um so don't quote me on this but i'm pretty sure i read somewhere that it like uh the slider is one of the hottest mastered records ever like it was mastered super super loud um and it's like compressed to hell and just if you look at the wave files for that album it's just a block it's there is no dynamics at all it's crazy loud it's like it's a lot like uh the iggy (laughs) pop remix of raw power which we are going to talk about later but yeah, I would say that that check out the slider if you're not as into Electric Warrior, which a lot of people say is the seminal T-Rex album. I think a lot of that stuff is great. Okay. So I've shown you the biggest glam rock act maybe ever. Um, but what is glam? In all reality, on the surface level, it isn't that far from bubblegum music. Musically, glam rock is characterized by heavy guitars and big riffs sensual rhythms, nonsensical or blunt lyrics, usually both, catchy choruses and guitar solos, and uh, traditional pop structure. So very traditional pop song structure a lot of the time. There are lots of bands that arose simultaneously in Britain and after T-Rex that followed this formula. Slade is a really, really good example of straight ahead glam rock. Blunt lyrics, simple catchy choruses, and a complete disregard for proper spelling to boot. Slade racked up one platinum, one gold, and four silver singles. This isn't one of them, but you may recognize it from a little hair metal band called Quiet Riot.
talk about a catchy chorus. What do you guys think of, of that singular Slade song, I guess? Michael, I want you to go first in this one, because I have a feeling I know how you feel about this track, and maybe Slade in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, if any, if our hair metal episode is any indication, <laughs> uh, go back and listen. Not a fan, not a fan. Um, never has have really been a fan of this just style of, uh, you know, screaming and uh, the <laughs> guitars are just so bland. It's just like, it's the it's the carbon copy of overdrive that every uh, 80s band will eventually have. And just, Oh, I hear it. And I just like, you know, I hear it in a grocery store and I think, Oh my gosh, or not even a grocery store, like usually a sports event. And it's, it's one of those things um, that gives me the, um, what I'll call the ACDC jitters um, where my body somehow just rejects it. Um, I don't know how this uh, eventually I, I obtain this ailment, but um, <laughs> it is something that will probably stick with me for the rest of my life. And sorry, Slade, uh, you make me sick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, I don't think I'll be as harsh on Slade as Michael here was, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, I listened to Sladeus, which is the song this comes off of. And in fact, if you listen to that record, Quiet Riot had a minor hit covering another one of their tracks, Mama, We're All Crazy Now. I don't know why they kept going back to that well. Whatever. Um, I, 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 they're fine. Slate is fine. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I will say this. I had more fun listening to this band than another band we'll get to in a little bit. And I will make sure to point out which band I'm talking about. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know. Like, they're, they're not – they're not that good at playing their instruments. Like they're pretty sloppy again, not as much as another band would talk about, although that's less of a knock against the band that uh, I'm thinking about uh, New York dolls as a side note, but um, New, York, New York dolls are not, we'll get to it. I, I, I like the New York dolls. I'm not trying to diss them, but no, it, to, Slade to me, you know, again, they're not musically they're not fine. I like the guitar tone in that song, but even then it's, I don't know. Like it, it's not like it was the entire record. Their singer is not very good. He, he, I, I will agree with you, Michael. His, his voice is very abrasive. I will say this. I actually prefer the singer of quiet, right? Over this guy. That's how much I don't not for his voice. Although I think he, he kind of gets around with some of the songs. Again, I didn't hate this. The one thing I will say about this track though, and I, I wanted to pose this question to you, Ben, do you think this song's a little more clever than what we give a credit what we give them credit for. And I say that because it feels very tongue in cheek. I mean, like, so like, there's a line in here that says, so you think my singing is out of time? Well, it makes me money. And I don't know why, you know, it's like, you see, they think there's a line in there that says, you know, like some people say I have a dirty, dirty mind and, I, and I'm a mean go-getter. And I don't know why. It's just like, yes, I'm, you know, I, I'm up and ready to go, you know, using innuendo all the time and i don't understand it like i feel like this this song almost feels like a parody of like every over-the-top sexualized todd rock song we were hearing at this time do you think that's a fair assessment or do you think these guys were just as you know you know in like part of that genre and you know they weren't they just weren't that good i don't know what do you think ben i don't know if it's i i I don't know if i wouldn't say as far as parody but i do think that slade has some self-awareness and you they have a slade made a movie and they had sort of a 
minor reign in, in England. They were way bigger there than here. They made a movie called Slade in Flame. And it's them playing uh, a band called Flame in the 60s, a la that movie with uh, Tom Hanks, That Thing You Do. It's kind of like that. Um, where they, they have like a big hit and then sort of break up at the end. The soundtrack to that is a lot more sophisticated. So that sort of makes me think that um, they, they kind of knew what they were doing with this stuff. Like they weren't complete boneheads, complete. They were boneheads, but they aren't like the dumbest people. They're close. And, and you know, just, just based off that, I'll give them credit for that. But yeah, like I... Of all the things we're talking about, maybe you you don't need Slade. That's yeah, my we're, recommendation. We're running the spectrum here. We're talking about a whole genre. There are things that are real dumb that some of you will like. I like the dumb stuff. There are things that are really sophisticated that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And those will appeal to, to the more highbrow of you. I like it all. Okay. So keeping on the traditional course of glam rock, Sweet is a late glam band that racked up four silver singles in the UK and two gold in the US. And they really show how poppy glam rock can be, especially when sped up. I left a little space open here. I think you're going to hear why in a second. Michael, why don't you go first and we'll let Andrew round this one out. Okay. Now we're starting to touch on the things I love about this genre. And it's, it's not in the instrumentals. Usually it's not in the, um, the actual singing, but it's with the vocal inflections. It's with the kind of skits that are in there. It's, it's whenever the, the performer is trying to introduce some sort of um, stage into their music, some sort of, uh, character into it and that's what i love about this genre we're going to hear a lot of it later on um but you're starting to touch on you know sweet and specifically this song is something i can groove to anytime no matter how cheesy it is so um i'll take the range just for a short moment here because i think um i'm probably more familiar than uh with, with sweet or sometimes known as the sweet which is stupid just call them sweet uh yeah, I never understood that, but whatever. Um, yeah, uh, Sweet is actually, I think, a really underrated band for like two or three albums. Uh, they actually started out making bubblegum music. In fact, they wrote a yep. song called Little, Will Little Willie. Um, I don't know what year they came out, but it's absolute crap. Do not listen to it. If you listen to it, you will regret it for the rest of your life because it is one of those annoyingly asinine songs. It's so stupid and yet insanely catchy. There is no song that's worse than that's annoying and also insanely catchy. It's all just an evil combination. 
But uh, starting off, I think, with uh, either their albums, uh, the record Sweet Fanny Albums or Destination Boulevard, whichever ones come first, um, they, they really switched up the sound to be not only be more glam, but actually become really heavy. I, I like the way I think of Sweet is if Slade was actually pretty good. Um, you know, Sweet, I kind of, um, they were, I don't want to say, they were def- I wouldn't say they're forerunners of early metal, but, you know, you def they're definitely a lot heavier than what one might think because you know their biggest hits you know during this time was you know fox on the run and uh ballroom blitz and admittedly i love ballroom blitz it's a great song um but it's not entirely accurate of what they were like if you listen to songs like into the night you know set me free um or uh sweet fa you know those those tracks are thrashy actually or at least for early 70s standards they're thrashy they're heavy and i don't think they get the credit for kind of uh in i don't want to say innovating because again a lot of bands were already kind of being heavier at that time but you know again for especially for the genre they're probably the heaviest you know band to come out of there i would argue at least at least for again a couple records it's not to say they're the best band ever again not not a, most a large majority of what they made isn't exactly gold. Uh, the, the two records I mentioned is where I'd stay. Even then, like there are songs in there called like ACDC, which not, nothing to do with the band and everything to do with really gross, um, you know, stereotypes about, you know, bisexual people. And yeah, not everything they've written ages well in that department. But I, I think Sweet still definitely offers a lot. Um, you know, they think they're pretty underrated and you might be surprised, you know, especially if you only know them from their hits on what else they might have to offer. So I'll just leave it there. Yeah. You brought up bisexuals. Uh, We're going to get there. (laughs) So glam rock isn't all dumb fun like Slade. Um, Just listen to Roxy Music. Roxy Music is the legendary original stomping grounds for Brian Eno and Brian Ferry. They expertly rode the line between decadent glam rock and more sophisticated art rock, especially when it came to their onstage look. They were also one of the longest lasting of the glam crowd, releasing their final record in 1982, although that was more new wave, less glam. I love me some Roxy music. What do you guys think of Roxy music? Sure. Yeah. Um, this one will kind of be a gloss over other than that. I, I really found it pleasant, man. I can sense, um, you know, Eno in this and I can, um, you know, link it to all of my favorite, you know, projects just from producing talking heads and his later ambient work and all of it. I can hear it in this, such a, a primitive, uh, project. Um, I don't know. It's confusing for me because like, while the tone overall somewhat bores me, 
um, the sound effects and the mixing is just mm-hmm. spot on. And, you know, it's something I want to go back and listen to if that's, if the parts I liked are um, capitalized on later on, um, you know, just uh, Eno being himself, um, yeah. the, the chunky chords and stuff like that. I mean, that's something I can sort of leave behind. That, um, Eno was a glam guy, first of all. Like, if you listen to his early solo stuff, that's just glam rock. So I, I'd say that I picked one of the more straightforward uh, songs on the record. That's a, I think Virginia Plain was a single. Um, and if you go in there, you'll get some weirder stuff and some more Eno-y, bleep bloop kind of things going on. It's, it's a rewarding lesson. What do you think, Andrew? Um, I actually really enjoyed this track um lyrics worried me for a second because there were a lot of odd references to like the confederacy at least it seemed like it sounds like you know when he's talked but you mentioned like the name robert lee in there uh, i think he was referring to like a record producer instead of the confederate general just gonna assume that that's the case um but musically i loved this and i think Overall, you know, listening to the self-titled Roxy Music record, musically, it might be the best that I heard across the whole um, listening experiences. Maybe maybe the album next, it'd be a little bit of a sin to put Roxy Music over, over it. But um, no, I think I, I'm really interested in looking what else Roxy Music had to offer. Of course, I've heard so much about Brian Eno's work as a producer, um, you know, working with our artists and helping them be better. I hadn't really explored much of his music, and, I, and this is this is an indication of anything. Yeah, I think this is really good. Michael said it great. The mixing was spot on. Everything just sounded so crisp and clear. Um, and I really just like the attitude. Um, I, I'm, who, who's singing on this record, Ben? Sorry, I don't... I don't uh, if you can ask me. That's Brian Ferry. Brian Ferry. Yeah, he was really good. I, I really liked his attitude, particularly on this song. He just had this weird, like, uh, inflection. This is my whole kind of reference on the last song we talked about. Um, yeah, the, I, I, re- I really like this. Um, the one question I do, I, I do have, though, this is kind of for overall. We're talking about glam rock, Ben, and I also wanted to ask you about this. And I'm sorry if you've already kind of explained this a bit. I guess I'm just looking for a little more connections here. You know, already we've looked at, you know, kind of, you know, you know, varying qualities, but, you know, standard to dumb to pretty pretty decent, you know, 70s, you know, hard rock. You know, now we're kind of entering into art rock territory. We're actually going to enter into proto-punk later on mm-hmm. and you know my whole and even shock rock you know and my whole question is how what are the you know musical qualities of glam rock what what, what are the things that you that musically can tie all this stuff together because i was actually a little surprised to see mm-hmm. roxy music you know appear on this list granted i i'm and i'm not super well first so that might just be the reason but you know i don't know if i would have thought of them as glam you know considering their whole you know um you know uh, reputation as you know art as an art rock band. right that's a very very good question andrew it's going to kind of tie into what i talk about next but i will take a little time to explain it here um when people think about i guess the best example off the top of my head would probably be punk rock music if you say punk rock music there are so many wide-ranging subgenres, but punk is has I'd still, I still call it a genre, and I still think you can find stuff that fits and doesn't fit, but it has an attitude with it as well. And that's the really significant part of glam. And the significant thing to say here as well is that the artists that I'm talking about, 
a lot of them lasted a lot longer than this period of time lasted. Glam rock is a very defined genre that lasted in the early to mid 70s. These bands, if you think of the next artist we're going to talk about, if you think of Roxy Music, um, other artists we're going to talk about, they moved on from glam rock. Glam rock is, is an attitude, most of all. We're going to talk about it here in a second. It's an attitude. It's a look. It's a sound. Sound generally characterized by, you know, it's, it's just rock music of the time, you know, bigger guitars, bigger drums, but always very, very catchy and pop focused. And I think Roxy Music fits in here, especially from like their first two albums, because they had some of that. They, they were trying to make catchy music. They were in that 70s rock sound. If you see them on stage, they look so glam. Um, and I think that really leads into talking about what I'm going to talk about next. Um, so I hope I've explained it. If I hadn't explained it yet, I'm about to. Glam rock isn't just about music. It's far from that. In a 1976 article in Working Class Youth Culture called Beyond the Skinheads, authors Taylor and Wall argued that glam is, quote, an offensive commercial and cultural emasculation of the far more masculine and authentic middle class underground. I disagree. I'd call it a visual smorgasbord of fashion styles from old Hollywood glamour to cabaret to burlesque to 50s pinups and old science fiction movies. It's the beautiful, beautiful height of androgyny. Men in women's clothing, men in makeup and heels, women in men's clothing, long hair for the boys and short hair for the girls. This is, of course, all simplification. It's the glorification of sex in all forms. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that soon. But above all, glam music was a refuge for outcasts, people who felt as though they didn't fit in in society. A group of people that definitely felt this way at the start of the 70s was the queer community. Many of these people could find solace in the androgyny and the acceptance of glam rock. And the fact that glam icons were held up as real honest to God rock stars certainly helped that. David Bowie was a major force in the genre, not only musically, but in establishing this culture. We could hem and haw all day about David Bowie's sexuality but no matter where he laid on that spectrum, the fact remains that Bowie was part of a very significant event in gay culture. On July 5th, 1972, Ziggy Stardust, David Bowie's alter ego, and his Spiders from Mars appeared on top of the Pops and played the song you're hearing right now, Starman. Bowie is wearing a face full of makeup, painted nails and all. During the chorus, he wrapped his arm around lead guitarist Mick Ronson. Gay or not, it doesn't really matter, and we're not really sure about David Bowie. But he had just exposed an entire country to androgyny and queerness on a scale never seen before. So the question is not what you think of David Bowie. The question is, what do you think of this period of David Bowie? Michael. 
Okay, first of all, this is the closest we're going to get to like a documentary in podcast form. Dude, you timed that so well. Thank you. <laughs> um, David Bowie has been reappearing into my life in various phases. When I first heard Nirvana cover Man Who Sold the World, I immediately went over to check out that album. Of course, like anyone else, I listened to Black Star after he died, which uh, led me into the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. And now I find myself going back and exploring his later work, um, Heathen, most prevalently. But yeah, um, this period of David Bowie is what we got to focus on. You're right. Um, because this is the glam period and Aladdin saying following this. Um, this album I have explored all the time. And I, I just can't get over um, how unique it sounds with the bass and the acoustic guitar, the mixing. I mean, everything's perfect together. Um, ben is going to talk about how he thinks David Bowie is just as good, if not better, I think, a producer than he is a performer. I don't know if I would go that far, but holy shit, the stuff that David Bowie actually produces, I mean, um, Stooges and everything he's been involved in, it's its amazing. Um, yeah, David Bowie is, is just one of those figures that you're never going to forget. And uh, it's music like this that makes him stick out for all of eternity. Um, I, I don't really have much else to add. Like, what, what, what am I going to say about Ziggy Stardust? Uh, you know, particularly that album that hasn't been set before. Like, like, like Michael, my, Michael actually mentioned Man Who Sold the World, which I actually have him on over here. Um, my favorite, that's my favorite Bowie record because I'm a sucker for heavy music. And talk about proto metal. Like, man, that album does not get brought up, brought up enough when talking about that. But, um, while I'm not like a, Fan, a lot of his more, I guess, quote, I don't want to say standard because it's Bowie. It's, how can any of his stuff be standard? But you know, you know what I mean? Like the more straightforward, you know, st stuff that sounds like it belongs more in its time. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, something like um, Changes, uh, you mm -hmm. know, stuff like that. You know, Hunky Dory, thank you. So, so, yeah, I, I, Hunky Dory is kind of whatever for me. There are some songs in there I really like, um, but it's not up, up there with my absolute favorites of his. Ziggy Stardust, I think, is a really interesting record you know especially when we're talking about the idea of glam because of course he took the idea of doing you know all the makeup and kind of creating you know a, a character around that he, he he created a concept around that you mentioned concept records earlier ben and i'm sure this is kind of at least one of the things you were referring to you know, the idea of creating a story you know this you know the, 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 this this character and he's an alien rock star he's come to earth to War humanity of a penny apocalypse or something to that attune. I'm sure I got uh, maybe part of that wrong there, but it, it, it's a really interesting idea uh, to take with this. I know he was always kind of creating characters for himself. So, uh, and this is just a prime, you know, example of that when it comes to talking about Bowie. I mean, if you haven't heard this record for whatever reason, change it, change that now. I mean, it, it's, it's a classic for a reason. So, that's about as much as I want to say. Yeah. We're going to talk a little more about David Bowie here in a second, but I have to make a quick aside because I mentioned that in 1972, David Bowie had a huge moment for gay culture, uh, broadcasting on top of the pops, putting his arm around his lead guitarist, which doesn't seem like a big deal now, but it was then. Um, that moment was going to be surpassed the next year. In 1973, an unknown rock star began to appear everywhere in Penthouse, Vogue, 
and Rolling Stone in full-length posters on over 250 New York City buses and on a 41-foot by 43-foot billboard in Times Square. It was beautiful, like an ancient Roman statue come to life. He was larger than life, literally so in Times Square. He was Joe Bryath. He was, in his own words, rock's truest fairy. Joe Bryath should have gone down in history as the first openly gay rock star. He never got quite that far. Despite the hype, the American was seen as a Bowie copy. I've never thought that. There are similarities, but as many have said, what Bowie played on stage, Joe Bryath lived. Maybe America just wasn't ready for such brazen and open homosexuality. Freddie Mercury was certainly taking notes, and there's a, reason, there's a reason Elton John stayed in the closet for most of his career. While glam was freeing for a lot of queer people, it is important to note that you can talk the talk all you want without consequences, like a lot of these bands did. But when you start walking the walk like Joe Bryath, that's when the bigotry starts. This is from his first album. Na, 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 na. Jobriath, not appreciated in his time, not appreciated enough now. What did you guys think? You go first this time, Andrew. Well, all right. Um, I've actually been made aware of Jobriath maybe about a month ago or so. I saw like a, I think it was a YouTube video, kind of just, let's just do like a short, you know, biography explaining who he was. And, you know, um, at the time I was, I remember hearing clips of the music and being like, oh, okay, that that's fine. The music's fine. And, it sounded like he had a really important, you know, story, you know, talking about, you know, the, uh, the, fact, the fact that he kind of was the first openly gay rock star, even though if he never truly was, because he never got had a really chance to, um, like, like, like you said, Ben, make it that far. But he, I mean, he definitely provided, you know, a window looking back in history, you know, a really, it was a real, you know, you know, game changer in terms of that. However, Having listened to the full Jabriath record, at least the first one that uh, he released, his self-titled album, I really like this. Um, I don't know if it's musically among my favorites that we're talking about here, although we're talking about some of my favorite records here in this uh, in this playlist. So it's still hard to top that. So I'm just now kind of starting to explore his music. But yeah, there was a lot of great variety in here. It's a great use of backing vocals, as you just heard in that track, some of that great riffs. There's actually just a really good hard rocker in here. Uh, it's called World Without End. I really like that, the riffing and everything in there. And, you know, speaking of that song, and, you know, just kind of talk about most of this stuff in general. Something I kind of it was made aware of because I, I had to do a lot of driving, you know, in preparation, you know, during the time we were preparing for this episode. 
This is really good music to drive your car to. This is just great stuff. T-Rex, Jabrath, um, you know, Roxy Music, Sweet, whatever. Like this, this, this stuff make, can make a long car ride a lot of fun. And uh, I think uh, Jabrath was able to help do that, you know, and it's unfortunate how his life ended. And I'm sure uh, you'll talk about that in a second, Ben. But um, yeah, Jabrath, yes. Uh, this album is really good and everyone should go listen to it. And he is a very important figure in music that unfortunately is not talked about enough. Enough. So, uh, Michael, I'm really interested what you have to think to say about this. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's not a lot because you reiterated pretty much everything I was going to talk about, um, even when it comes to driving, because I was going to say that too. Like, this song came on in the car for me and I was... Uh, yeah, I was driving back from a wedding and the wedding was terrible. And this just put me in like a, a, a fantastic mood. Um, and yeah, I mean, the music like this, uh, just going along with um, the historical context. I mean, um, this all of this music is a soundtrack um, for freedom uh, when it comes to uh, gay rights, queer rights. And, uh, you know, in this time period, maybe it's time to resurrect some, some uh, Joe Bryath. Um, I would agree with you guys on that. Yeah. The driving thing's a very good thing to bring up. And I think we'll make this, this episode, the first one we post the Spotify playlist for, if you got Spotify, which we mostly all do now, um, you should go seek that. Just drive around. That's what I've been doing. I hadn't been listening to as much glam rock for the last year or two. And this episode really got me back into it. And it is great driving music. Okay. Back to David Bowie. He wasn't just a forerunner in the look and culture of glam rock. He also had a direct impact on the sound of at least three other important glam rock acts. Bowie didn't spend much time in the producer's chair for other people's records relative to the length of his career, but he had a fair amount of production success in the glam rock era. Mott the Hoople was a glam band on the cusp of breaking up in 1972 when Bowie offered them his song, All the Young Dudes. The band cut the song and album of same name with Bowie at the controls, also offering his skills as a singer and saxophonist in the studio. You can hear him sing on this song. Bowie's firm hand sculpted a great Mott the Hoople album and put them on the path to some continued success until the end of the glam rock era. script for a second i know i'm kind of the the ringleader here i'm sort of just ferrying you two through the world of glam rock but Mott the hoople um 
was an early favorite band of mine due to their relation to Queen. That's how I found out about them. And I think that the Mount the Hoople live album is one of the best live albums of all time. What did you guys think of Mount the Hoople? I have no idea. I love this song personally, and I didn't, I couldn't associate it to an act before this episode. I know the lyrics, I know the chorus, everyone does, but um, I have not been able to put a name to it. And now I did, and you fixed that for me, Ben. So thank you so much. This is one of those bands that I have to go back and check out. Um, And uh, Bowie's hand on production um, definitely serves the album. And it's, this song was just like an ode to this entire era era and i love when musicians write songs like that kind of more reflective on um you know the the style that they and the uh, personality that they adapted because of the time period that they're in so yeah great song that's all i got um i was only aware of all the young dudes probably like maybe a lot of people are about the google i would assume i don't know uh and i did go and listen to the title the album of the same name and i have to say after listening to this i discovered something i am not a fan of Mount the hoople i am sorry <laughs> ben uh it's it just you know the song the big hit is fine i like the opening lick um, nothing about much to like apart from like an okay hook in the chorus nothing about this song really jumps out at me so it's kind of one of the like 70s radio hits that just kind of gets glopped with everything else that I just don't care about I like the Doobie Brothers or something it's whatever um, I, I did like the song Soft Ground it had a really good stomping rhythm and an okay riff with some interesting guitar tones going on there but something i noticed here this like the songwriting was just lacking to me like the, i don't know where the riffs were there there weren't any real strong riffs to me on this record maybe their other albums are better uh if if so please let me know ben but yeah i wasn't really finding much of um much excitement from them the singer he's kind of like a poor man's david bowie I, I really just did nothing for me. And there was also a lot of cowbell, at least on the first half of this record, which <laughs> anyone who knows me is like my biggest pet peeve in music. It is the dumbest sounding instrument ever. I hate, I'm not going to get into it. Point is that that's more of a personal gripe, I will admit. But yeah, I mean, it got better as it went along. But I mean, yeah, this this album to me just, just again, it's like a lot of the other really boring 70s rock that I've heard in my life. And I don't know, Is this, this was easily probably my least, apart from the bubblegum stuff, probably my least favorite stuff I listened to in preparation for this episode. Um, not really excited to go back and check them out. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See, totally fair. All the young dudes. I like it. Some people don't. I did want to mention though, you mentioned the singer, the singer's Ian Hunter. Um, I'm going to mention him again later, but Ian Hunter on his first solo album had a song called once bitten twice shy. And to pull it back to hair metal yet again, which is sort of a sister genre to this, but way dumber, I think. Um, <laughs> Once Bitten, Twice Shy was covered by Great White. Um, and that was their biggest hit, I think. So great. If you're an 80s hair is band. That the song, hmm? Ben, is that the song they were playing when they burnt down the bar and killed a lot of people? <laughs> Maybe. Or or were they playing it when they played like a, a no dis- social distancing crowd at uh, I think it was in maybe Chicago where like a bunch of people, like just middle-aged people went up without wearing masks and jamming uh-huh. out to Greek white because they are on a hell bent to kill their audience, whatever audience <laughs> they have. 
So, anyway, sorry, you brought up Greg White, and I had other audiences ever. Okay, Great White sucks. Let's move on. Um, more David Bowie productions. Also in 1972, same year as that Mott album, Lou Reed was two years removed from his band, his great great band that we will talk about someday, The Velvet Underground. He had released one poorly selling solo album, self-titled, and it looked as though he was poised to say, to stay underground. Velvet Underground. That's when the co-production team of David Bowie and his lead guitarist Mick Ronson came calling. Bowie and Ronson produced and play on every song on Lou Reed's second solo album, Transformer, and it shows. The glam edge works well in Lou Reed's music, well enough to get him his biggest hit, Walk on the Wild Side, which went to number 10 in the UK and number 16 in the US. That song also continued Lou Reed's legacy as a leading light in the queer community and its mentioning of several transgender characters based on real people. If you're a rock fan or a music fan, or if you like A Tribe Called Quest, then I'm sure you've heard that song. So I'm not gonna play that one. I'm gonna play I'm So Free, which features David Bowie's vocals prominently. You heard David Bowie's vocals, Mick Ronson's amazing guitar playing. That's the magic touch of David Bowie in the studio, especially around this time. What did you guys think of Lou Reed specifically on this album or this song? I was so happy to see this on here because I'm finally giving Lou Reed's music a chance after all these years. Started listening to the Velvet Underground. I love the song. Uh, Who Loved the Sun? I just, yeah, I finally I'm getting into this stuff and I'm finally able to appreciate it after a lot of growing. Um, and yeah, I, all I have to say is I love this one. Uh, again, I love David Bowie's touches on this. Um, I, I'm glad he's kind of interjecting himself a little more into the uh, production and the performance side of things. Um, you know, I, I'm usually not a fan of songs with uh, clapping in them, but uh, just like Andrew, that's uh, I know that we both do not like that stuff, but this one was catchy and it, and it served its purpose. And I, I jammed out to it in my car, like many of these other songs. I actually didn't notice the clapping, so thanks for pointing that out, Michael. But <laughs> Sorry, dude. No, no it's, it's fine because I still enjoyed the song. Um, and I'm pretty much in the same camp as Michael. I, I know some of the Velvet Underground stuff. I think at the first episode of the season, we talked about Nico Solar, which I finally gave a shot, and I really liked that stuff. Still, New Reed is kind of one of those discographies in my head. When I say those discographies, I mean so large, and there's different eras and taught in directions it goes in like where do i start the only thing i ever really have heard about lou reed's uh music is that metal machine music sucks and uh walking the wild side's overplayed so i'm like uh cool great doesn't help me um honestly probably should have just started with this a long time ago transformer and i think it's a really good um uh record i really do um it's I don't know. It, it has a. It does have a very Bowie vibe to it, especially heard on that song. I mean, uh, the guitars, as you mentioned, it's just yeah. It sounds like it was pulled right off in a, like an early Bowie '70s Bowie record. 
you know, and Nubi doesn't have, I, I think I was actually watching an interview with yeah, Jilla Biafra earlier this weekend, and she actually brought up Lou Reed, and she's like, yeah, Lou Reed doesn't have the best range or, you know, whatever or not, but you know when he opens his mouth, you know who exactly it is, and you know, a unique voice can carry you such a long way, even if you don't have the raw talents, and yeah, I, I don't know, I really liked I, I've Set You Free, uh, you know, in that, and obviously the big track, Walking the Wild Side, a lot of great use of backing vocals on this record too, which I, I, I've noticed is kind of a theme I've heard. There's a lot of great use of backing vocals throughout the genre. And I think that's how I kind of tie this in, this album into the glam stuff. Um, ben, is there, okay, sorry if I missed it, but is there a kind of, uh, I mean, apart from being produced by David Bowie, you know, around this time and glam is at its height, uh, I guess how else does this record kind of fit in with the genre of glam? definitely like Lou Reed dipping his toe into it. Uh, yeah, right. You're right. The backing vocals, the Bowie touch, the guitar sound, especially that's all very glam. Also the way that Lou Reed was Lou Reed was like glam before and after glam happened. He was a makeup guy. He'd wear makeup. He was a part of, you know, the Warhol scene and that was an influence on, on glam rock as well. Um, and he was, you know, had tons of queer friends. He was queer as well, I think. So, he, he was just sort of immersed in all of these influences. He was an influence on the genre. He was in the genre here for a little bit, primary transformer, not really any of his other solo stuff. And uh, then he sort of carried on some of the hallmarks of it because he really was a big deal to, to a lot of these, these artists, I think, at least through the Velvet Underground. Uh, Mott the Hoople covered a Velvet Underground song on all the young dudes. Um, okay. So last, but certainly at least of the Bowie productions, he was instrumental in reuniting the Stooges for raw power. The Stooges over, secured them a contract, and they made one of the most influential hard rock albums ever. With glam influences, thanks in part to Williamson's guitar playing and songs, Bowie helped in the stage, some would say to the album's detriment, but he nevertheless was very important in getting the record made. And that is something important to point out, which I brought up, James Williamson, really changed up the sound of the Stooges from their first two albums. And he's the one that's bringing a lot of the glam stuff in. He was the guy with crazy outfits. I mean, Iggy Pop would, would dabble in some makeup as well, but he was mostly shirtless with like tight pants. Um, this is as glammy as the Stooges ever got, I think is, is raw power. Definitely. And, and you can really, you can hear some of it on this song, Shake Appeal. <laughs> I'm going to cut Shake Appeal short because honestly, if you've listened to this show for any period of time and you haven't heard Raw Power, I, I don't believe that you've been listening to this show for any amount of time. If you haven't heard Raw Power all the way through, <laughs> I give you permission, pause now and go listen to it. Okay, now that those people are gone um, because they need to go do their homework, do, do we even really need to talk about the Stooges? I think if you, know, mm -hmm. you want to ask why this no. is glam... That's basically all we can talk about. Everyone loves the Stooges. Um, the one thing I do want to bring up, and you're right, I mean, I think 
between the three of us, people might have already gotten to the point by now. Doja's are probably up there. I would say generally between the three of us is one of my favorite bands. I, I love the Stooges. This is easily my favorite Stooges record. The one thing I do want to talk about, and you mentioned the Bowie mix, you know, Ben, and this is, I really want to hear an opinion from both of you. Where do you lie on that? The Bowie mix or the Iggy mix? Uh, you also mentioned that one earlier, Ben. And the, the whole clip bungling of the, the mixing of this record has become legendary to a point where I actually have a vinyl copy of Raw Power, which I'm holding up here for the audio listeners, that is a double LP that contains both the Iggy's mix and the Stooge, and the uh, Bowie mix, Bowie, Iggy mix, whatever, you know what I mean? Contains both mixes. That's how infamous, you know, this debate is between uh, music nerds is which one they prefer. Personally, I prefer the Iggy mix. I think this is basically a punk record and punk needs to be loud and abrasive. So I prefer the loud abrasive version of Icky, but where do you two stand in that debate? Michael? You go first, Ben. Okay. I, think. Um, I would say that I am an Iggy mix guy, definitely. I would love to, to live in a perfect world where we found a happy medium between where I didn't have to listen to annoying digital distortion on the Iggy mix. Um, and we could get some of the more interesting elements of the Bowie mix because the Iggy mix kind of streamlines and like uh, takes away any weird effects or anything Bowie had on there. Some of that stuff's cool. Like this version of Shake Appeal, there's some big reverb on the vocals sometimes. I think that's really interesting. And it's a weird mix, which Bowie was a fan of. Um, I would love to see a happy medium. I am an Iggy mix guy. How do you feel, Michael? I think... I can be the happy medium and just say it depends on the song for me. I can't listen to search and destroy it without it being the Iggy mix, but songs like shake appeal, I have to, I'd have to do the Bowie mix. It really just depends on the tone of the song and what they're trying to go for. Um, maybe, maybe one day we can, um, as a mini episode, we can pick out our favorites um, from each of the mixes and maybe make a perfect uh, raw power album. Wouldn't that be fun. That would be sick. And but, we should do that. Yeah. Um, we are going to cross the pond again here. Um, so Raw Power was recorded in the UK, but the Stooges were American. So was Lou Reed. They can't be said for most glam bands, but there are a few more American bands that can fit the bill if you stretch the definition a little bit. Stretch the definition is the key phrase. Glam just didn't do as well here as it did in the UK. Um, I'm not really sure why. I suppose we were just waiting on hair metal to give us a more disappointing and less honest version of men in women's clothes. The Alice Cooper band, however, is a great example of U.S. glam, I think. Decadent, extravagant, but with a more menacing edge. I'd say that most of the Alice Cooper band albums and Alice's first solo album are glammy enough to be mentioned here. Cooper, I'd say, is debatable for this episode, but let me just explain. They've got the weird fashion, the stage presence. They've got the riffy rock, um, and they, they, they use the studio, I think, in, in the way that a glam rock band does. 
What do you guys think? This is another Michigan band, just like the Stooges. I think they've all been at least a little part of our lives just because we live in Michigan and hear them maybe a little more often. Yeah. Alice Cooper is just a walking contradiction, isn't he? Is he glam? Is he not? Is he Michigan? Is he not? You know, mm. but like um, this song I really enjoyed. And Alice Cooper is one of the, another one of those bands that has been thrown at me so often by both you guys and my girlfriend and literally anyone who loves music is like, go and check out the Alice Cooper uh, records because it's so often like, um, you know, misconceptualized um, by guys like me of what Alice Cooper actually is. And, um, you know, after I'm, I've had my Lou Reed fix, maybe this will be the, the um, natural next step is to go and dive into Alice Cooper. But yeah, this song was awesome. And I think the Americanized version of glam is um, something to be remembered. And I think we can, kind of view Alice Cooper. Can we call Alice Cooper the goth David Bowie? I don't know. Hmm. Um, we can just... I don't know. The, I, goth wasn't really a thing until the 80s, though, wasn't it? Just in terms of style. Right. That maybe, might be reasonable. More macabre. I, I'd say the macabre version of David Bowie. Yeah, Welcome to My Nightmare accurate. is definitely... <laughs> yeah. It's like the alternate universe version of, of Ziggy Stardust. Andrew, what do you think? <laughs> Well, first of all, it's a perfect description of that record. And second of all, yeah, I, anyone knows me, I was I love seventies Alice Cooper, and only in the seventies. I mean, I know he had some stuff in the sixties. That stuff's fine. Referring to anything after seventy nine is not good. But um, that being said, yeah, I think Michael kind of hated on something. A lot of people just remember, oh, he's a shaka guy. He had that schools out song, ha ha ha. All these school school kids are age kids are going to be rebellious. Um, and, you know, you go listen to a lot of those early records. He has some dark stuff on those albums to a point where, like, yeah, like that stuff, like, you hear a song like Dead Babies off of Killers. Yeah, to me, that's real. That's why I'm thinking maybe not glam. I don't know. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with this uh, contradiction. Like, Welcome to My Mind, where it's dark territories. I mean, this guy was shock rock. Sure, he had the makeup stuff. He had, like, the stage shows, but that was far and away different than you saw from a lot of these other bands. They're trying to be glitzy and glamorous. Not Alice. Alice was very much, um, you know, go going to in there to shock people. He knew, like, he would, like, fake, you know, like, execute himself by hanging. Like, I don't, I don't, I didn't see Stiggy Stardust doing that on stage, so... I don't know. But that being said, Alice Cooper is a, again, he's made some tremendous music during that decade. This is a great example. And I think this is probably one of his more glammy songs. See, if you're talking musically here, it's so the horns and just the anthemic qualities of it. It's great. Uh, Alice Cooper is also kind of an innovative other as fashions too. I do want to mention, because I don't know when we'll really have a chance to talk about Alice Cooper again, but um, on the album Killers, uh, had, a, had a song called Halo of Flies that is definitely a forerunner, probably like arguably one of the first true like progressive metal songs too. And that's just a really underrated track. Um, and you know, if, if there is gonna be a glam Alice Cooper record, it's probably going to be Billion Dollar Babies, which is again, what Elective is off of. So, and I, and I mentioned all the stuff around it because again, I don't know if this is really a good fit based on what else I've listened to, to call Alice Cooper glam. That being said, I, I'm just happy you put him in here because I love any opportunity to talk about Alice Cooper. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we have crossed the pond over and back again. Um, we are almost nearing the end journey, but first we're going to bite the big apple. Um, 
So don't get me wrong. Glam in the U.S. existed. It just wasn't as by the numbers as it was in the U.K. You kind of heard that with Alice Cooper, very debatable choice for whether or not it's glam. The Stooges, debatable. Lou Reed, for that one album. After that, very debatable. Um, but another great, great example of U.S. glam is the New York Dolls, especially in their style. Decked out in full drag on their debut album cover, the Dolls served up a blend of glam and proto-punk, much like the Stooges, but with some 50s rock and roll influences to boot, a lot like T-Rex. I'd argue that Johnny Thunders was to rock guitar here, what Mark Bolin was to rock guitar in Britain. And you're up Any quick thoughts on the New York Dolls, folks? What do we think? You're up on this one, Andrew. I mean, I mean, there's a reason why New York Dolls is considered protopunk because of the attitude. I mean, you listen to that. I know I, met, I, know I kind of made a little chat with them earlier. It's kind of playful. I mean, I don't think like that the, the uh, New York Dolls were ever considered the most musically uh, proficient band in the world, but they didn't need to be. They really didn't like what they what they may have lacked in that department. They completely uh, uh, regained an attitude, as you can hear in, in that in that track. And you know, again, just ba- whether it came to their, you know, their their stage shows, their stage presence, to their you know to their songs, to their production, whatever it might be. Uh, they were rough around the edges, and I mean that in all the best ways. So, and yeah, because of all that, yeah, I can definitely see why people might throw them into the glam genre. Michael, I have very little to say on New York Dolls just because this was one of those that unfortunately I didn't have time to explore a little bit deeper. Um, my only connection with them is really seeing some memorabilia in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so I know they're important. Um, and that song, uh, Personality Crisis, was uh, was absolutely a pleasure to listen to. I love, 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 love the vocals and how it's it captures punk, but also puts kind of uh, like what I said, how uh, the trait I love about glam rock is kind of that stage presence and the theatricality of it and the New York dolls I know are famous for that so it's something I'm, I definitely shouldn't pass up it is now 1976 glam rock had a good five years but that's all over now T-Rex has fallen from the mainstream and Mark Bolin will be dead within a year Slade had their last glam hit in 1975 Sweet had their last gold record in 1975. Roxy Music will not release a new album until 1979, and it won't be glam. Ziggy Stardust died in 1973. David Bowie is now the Thin White Duke. Jobriath retired from music in 1975. You'll be one of the first internationally famous musicians to die from AIDS in 1983. Mott the Hoople has passed their prime and without former lead singer Ian Hunter. Lou Reed has moved on to regular old rock and roll. The Stooges broke up in 1974. Epop is addicted to drugs and has checked himself into a mental institution. The Alice Cooper band broke up in 1973. Alice Cooper is descending deeper and deeper into alcoholism. The New York Dolls broke up in 1976. Glam rock, we hardly knew ye. 
Such a beautiful star could only burn so bright and so hot for so long. But maybe, just maybe, there was a little stardust left. A movie came out in the summer of 1975. Just as the glam rock tide was going out, seemingly for good, it featured smaller actors, an androgynous antagonist or protagonist, and, for the record, a kick-ass soundtrack. The Rocky Horror Picture Show came out in 95 to critical and public indifference. It started being shown as a midnight movie in New York City in 1976 and began to develop a cult following. Specifically, a cult of people who liked to yell and throw things. That cult grew and grew and grew. How'd you do, I? See you've met my faithful hand in hand. He's just a little broad dying because when you not, he thought you were the candy man. Don't get strung up by the way I look. Don't judge a book by its cover. I'm not much of a man by the light of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual. Rocky Horror would go on to be the longest-running theatrical release in film history. This was the key. This was the last bit of stardust left in the tank. It wasn't a full resuscitation. That would have been impossible. But every October, we can look up at silver screens and little theaters and drive-ins from the Golden Gate to the Empire State and see the glammy Dr. Frankenfurter, and in his visage be reflected those of Mark Bolin, Joe Bryath, Ziggy Stardust, and every other glam rock titan we were lucky to know that were taken from us too soon. Quick, oh, I'm sorry. Quick opinions on the Rocky Horror Picture Show soundtrack, as if anyone has anything negative to say about it, Andrew. Actually, uh, I'm gonna. Oh. Andrew's going first. Okay, hit it. No, well, he mentioned me, so I wasn't sure. Actually, I was just gonna say I'm gonna actually skip on talking about this one because I've actually never seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show oh, either at the movie or like in theaters. So, well, great news, I really don't Andrew. Have any- they're showing drive-in in Muskegon, um, so. I'm not driving out to Muskegon. Just no, you're not driving. That. I'll drive. So, you. 
great. That sounds like kidnapping, but whatever. Okay. Um, point is, I just don't have anything really to say about it. So, Michael, you take the stage. Yes, please. Oh, my gosh. Andrew, hopefully this sentiment will uh, will convince you to eventually watch, watch this and not just watch it, like, attend the performance of Rocky Horror. Um, and it's that whole thing that Ben said just made me sad that, like, I can't go this year because I've made it a point um, every year of college. So far, I'm a junior, so I've been twice to get out to the Broadway theater here in Mount Pleasant and, you know, watch uh, Rocky Horror with people shadow acting it in front and, you know, participate in throwing things and dance with the songs and the costume contests. I mean, I can't explain how liberating it is to go to something like that and just like be yourself and just like release any sort of like tension you have. I mean, it's, it's like the one time of a year for me, it's become a Hollywood or sorry, a Halloween staple for me. Um, I love the movie so much. I love the soundtrack so much. And, you know, there's pictures of me that exist, um, you know, with very minimal clothing on and fully decked out in makeup. And I, I'm, t- I'm totally fine with saying it because it's so like, I'm so proud that I've been to those performances and seen that movie and seen it, how it's supposed to be viewed. Um, and the soundtrack, I mean, I, there's just nothing better. I mean, so catchy and like, um, oh, dude, Rocky Horror, such a good time. And, you know, I'm so sad I can't go this year. Um, yeah, that's really all I got to say about it. I've, I've, if you were wondering what I dress up as, I think I, I never really go with like a theme. I'm more just kind of like dress up as the short troll version of Frankenfurter. Um, but (laughs) yeah, uh, oh, such a good time, man. Love Rocky Horror so much. And you, you, you alluded to it and I know I'm being over the top here in this episode. That's kind of the point of this entire genre. Um, I'm decked out, you know, I'm, I'm giving my big soliloquies, but really Michael mentioned it. Um, this culture has very, very, I'm so pleased that Rocky the thing, because that's, what's keeping glam culture alive. I'm not bullshitting when I say that, like, when you go there and you see people, you see men in makeup and men in women's clothes and women in men's clothes and everyone is nude, essentially. It's, that is from this, like Frankenfurter, the music in that, that's glam rock, hands down. That is the extension of this genre. It's a beautiful, gorgeous thing. Like Michael said, you know, um, it is freeing to break out of that shell and do it and do it at Rocky Horror. And if you're comfortable, do it whenever I've been wearing makeup once in a while. Now I really love it, you know, especially if you're a guy and that's sort of a social moray that you're not supposed to. It's stuff like this that makes me really, that's okay. And really feel like I can fully be myself. And that's why I do this episode, no matter how you feel about the music, there is something really empowering in this, especially for younger people. Um, the mantle of rock luckily has not been completely thrown. It's been taken up by the younger generation, our generation. Modern day American band, The Lemon Twigs, just released songs for the general public a few weeks ago. Fantastic album. And there's a song on there called Leather Together. I heard it, and I knew that glam would never truly die. It's kill something that's so sexy.
That ain't glam, and I don't know what the fuck is. And I think this episode has proven that I kind of do. Um, tell me what you think about the lemon twigs, and we'll do recommendations and get out of here. Andrew, you can go first. Um, yeah, I don't have much to say about this because I mean, I've heard this band before. Uh, I'm interested in checking out what else they have because it sounds pretty punky. Anyone who knows me knows it's right up my alley. At first, I was like, where where is the glam in this? But then, especially after you played that, uh, there for us, Ben, I can hear it. I can hear, you know, like especially something similar to New York Dolls. Like this sounds more like the more punky side of glam rock, and I, you know that was the weird thing. Apart from I guess glam metal, I was like when you first said this, I'm thinking where did where did it go after the seventies? It sounded like it had a pretty harsh, you know, die off period in the, in the middle of that decade and didn't really come back else unless until it mutated into hair metal. And we have a whole two hour episode that you can find in our archive about that. If you really want to dive into that, but if this is how the lambs can look moving forward, I, I definitely be paying attention. And for me, um, Ben and I were both anticipating the release of Songs for the GP, and damn, uh, I could not be more satisfied with the results. Um, you know, I wasn't even a glam guy going into this record, um, but when I heard uh, the first couple tracks, just the pre-release, I, I, I knew there was something there that I had to check out. And um, Leather Together is definitely my favorite track on the album, so I'm glad Ben put it in, and... Yeah, it's something whenever I enter Ben's apartment, I sometimes see it uh, outside his door and he he wears it like a badge of honor that Glamrock is still alive and you know I'm glad to see it as well. Yeah, they, they haven't unplugged the machine from the wall yet. Uh, let's do Rex. Michael, you're first. Sweet. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm excited about this record just because it's fun. Um, Ben showed me this song ages ago and then I forgot about it. And then it came up in a, just a spot if I recommendation um, y'all like blues clues. Did you ever watch blues clues as a kid? Are you, um, yes. are you kidding me? I, I did. blues clues. Oh, oh, yeah. of course. Well, Steve didn't actually go off to college. He became a dropout and started an indie band. <laughs> um, yeah. And he, he was a skater kid before he started blues clues. He had like long hair and everything. And, yeah, yeah, like look, look up, look him up. Every, everyone, just as a side, please just go look up Steve Burns. He's a fascinating individual. He's yeah. done so many interviews about being on that show, and it, it it's both whimsical and horrifying. Like just 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 go look him up. He's a really interesting dude. Definitely, and and this is the song that I found that he wrote um, shortly after Blues Clues ended, called "Mighty Little Man." And you can interpret this song however you want. It's very uplifting. It's very, uh, it's a great song and great instrumentals, but I took it as uh, a sentiment to all the short guys out there like me. Um, Steve himself is five, six. That's my height. And, you know, I was bullied a lot in high school for being short. Ben still sometimes picks uh, at me for being short, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's not something I'm not insecure about it anymore, but I, I like to know that I have something out there that, uh, 
represents us short guys and uh mighty little man god been listening to this all week hope you guys like it amazing Bless Blues Clues. Anyway, I <laughs> never, I never heard his solo music. You know, I, I heard that he did make new music after Blues Clues. I never heard it, and I think you just beat out my recommendation, Michael. You know, thanks. <laughs> no, no, seriously though, thanks. That was really good. I want to go check that out more. But <laughs> uh, I guess I'll try to soldier on with my recommendation. Uh, I would say this might be a personal favorite of mine perhaps i don't know um the band is the baboon show which is a stupid name for a pretty cool band uh their sweetest punk band i think formed in 2003 i mostly know their stuff from like around the turn of the decade like you know around 2010 um and the stuff especially before the year 2010 i think pretty strong pretty fun stuff they have a really strong singer um the album uh that i'm taking a song from is called Punk Rock Harbor, which the, the title track of that is really good too. But the first song I heard from them, I think it was like a Spotify recommendation. Uh, you're a theme here from uh, Michael's pick. Uh, it's called You Got a Problem Without Knowing It. And it's just just got full of attitude, full of energy. The production's really kind of odd for a punk song, but I really like it. Uh, hope you all like it as well. So here it is. Yeah, you seem pretty excited there, Pen. That yes. That was, I, that was so many hooks. I saw the album cover when you when you said this is my rec for today, and I was like, okay, that's kind of like fitting our vibe here. Um, the music, I, yeah, great, amazing pick. Oh wow. Okay, well, I'm happy. Um, uh, but I'm excited to hear what you have to show, you, Ben. Okay, so we talked about the New York Dolls earlier. The integral 
probably the most significant member of the New York Dolls was Johnny Thunders. Um, there's a documentary about Johnny Thunders that you can find online. I think it's streaming somewhere. I saw it. Um, that's a great documentary. It'll give you a lot of info on it. Johnny Thunders influenced everyone from the Ramones to metal guys to seriously, like if you have a favorite rock musician, especially a guitarist, they probably talk about Johnny Thunders at some point. We're talking mainstream, straight up rock and roll. Um, but after the New York Dolls broke up, he started a band called the Heartbreakers. It was sort of a turnstile. Um, Richard Hell was in it at one point playing bass. They played some of his early solo stuff. Uh, and then just like every band Richard Hell was in, um, there were personality conflicts and he got kicked out, but they put out one album, LAMF, which stands for like a motherfucker um, in like 77. And the mix was atrocious. Um, it's been resurrected and remixed many times from the lost 77 mixes. There was like some issue between the mixing stage and the mastering stage where it came out like muddy and sounded like ass. Um, this is a song called born to lose. I played this with like a band in high school. I think this is just a really great sort of, it's riding that line between proto-punk and punk. I'd say it's a, a punk song, I guess. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's fantastic. It's Johnny Thunders. You can't go wrong. Yeah, there you have it, Johnny Thunders. Um, ben, I actually have heard this song before. It was um, on the soundtrack, like all great music, um, to Skate Three. I think yeah. you were Skate Three, and that's oh, where I first God. heard it. It was it was a fan. I I love that song actually. There's, there's a lot of great songs on that record. There's a there, oh, I think it's the first time I ever heard Three Inches of Blood, which is just an awesome metal band that everyone should go listen to. Uh, they got a song on there too. So, wow, you just hit. You're, we're just you're just hitting all the nostalgia buttons for me, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> right. um, Michael, why don't you introduce us before we sign off? Though, why don't you just introduce us what our next topic is going to be? Oh yeah. This is going to be great. So, I mean, today you witnessed Ben kind of take the reins on glam rock and kind of shape the episode into this really nice narrative style. Um, next week, I'm going to be taking the reins into another genre exploration into math rock, which is one of my kind of obsessions. And rather than kind of having all of us here kind of going through in, in the narrative, um, I'm going to kind of make it a little more journalistic, get some guests finally, but um, not in here kind of talking to us, um, hopefully kind of spliced in to explore how Math Rock started, what makes it so great, what those guests love about it, um, and then eventually get some opinions from you guys. Um, it's a very niche genre. It's new. It's going to be weird. It's going to be, uh, I know I'm going to catch a lot of flack, but hopefully there's something that comes out of it that you both like. So that's the next episode, Math Rock. Um, is there anything else we got to say before we sign off? Yeah. Um... I just wanted to thank you all for playing along with this episode. I know we've been working on this, uh, especially me for two weeks now. Um, I really hope that our listeners enjoyed it. I had a fucking blast writing this and listening to all this music and getting back into glam and, 
going out and buying makeup and uh this was just a really significant experience for me and i thank you guys for letting me take the reins on this one and then really uh yeah really take the driver's seat um yeah it was great this was a fun episode for sure i'd like to see more like this in the future cool yeah and with that the last thing we say at the end of episodes Good night, Good night, Detroit. Detroit. And winds of passion, my wind is lashing, ooh, all night long. Hey. I want to call you, I want to bore you, get you in love. Ooh, you're strange.